Welcome to the Animal Rescue Podcast, what you always wanted to know but didn't know who to ask. I'm your host, Keisha Farrington. My guest this week is Jen Toussaint from the Animal Welfare League of Arlington. We discuss her work as an animal control officer and how she got started. We also discuss different ways you can get involved in animal welfare. There are more ways than you think. To learn more about Jen and her work, you can visit www.awla.org or check them out on Facebook at Animal Welfare League of Arlington and Instagram at AWLA Arlington. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Rescue Podcast. Thank you so much, Keisha, for having me. I'm so looking forward to this. Yeah. So when we did kind of our pre-interview chat, um, I, I honestly, I don't even know where to start with your experience because you, I was telling my husband, it's like, you're kind of the jack of all trades when it comes to animal control and welfare. Like you've done a little bit of everything. So let's start with what are you currently doing? So I am the Chief of Animal Control and Senior Director of Community Resources at the Animal Welfare League of Arlington in Arlington, Virginia. So I run all of field services and I oversee the Community Resource Department that does all of the community support programs. So things like our housing emergency lifeline for pets, uh, safekeeping program, our pet pantry, our low cost clinics, our veterinary grants all of the amazing programs that we run to try and keep people and their pets together, as well as running our animal services desk that does animal intakes, stray reclaims, and all the fun stuff. So you, like, I can't even wrap my head around everything that you do. It's, (laughs) there's so much. But I remember when we were talking, one of your big, one thing that really sticks with you is the fact that everything is so connected. So even if you're looking at animal rescue with domesticated animals, there's still a connection with people outside of that and maybe wildlife or, um, you know, helping keep pets in the home. I mean, everything is so interconnected. Yeah, I call it the intersectionality of animal welfare, right? It's all of the ways that the work we do interacts with all of the different ways. And it really just comes down to the human-animal bond. It is so very succinct. It is one thing, really. Um, And because of that, there's no way to really, like, cut animals out of the equation. They're a part of everything, right? So COVID happened, and our animals went into crisis, just like we went into crisis, You know, it was, um, we don't experience things separately from them. Um, And similarly, uh, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways and and our companion animals health and the uh, wildlife in our community's health is very much so tied together. Um, So there's really, I love love to say that it just all landed in my lap because there's no way to cut any part of it out. Um, As you mentioned, you know, wildlife, I run the wildlife uh, and founded the wildlife resource center at my organization. Um, and really just believe that there's a holistic way of looking at this work um, and not leaving anyone out of it um, and creating meaningful paths for all of these different avenues. Yeah. When we talked, um, one of the things that I really connected with most was your work with emergency preparedness. 
and animals. And, um, I, it's, I know when natural disasters happen, people always talk about, okay, make sure you have food prepared or you are, can just like get up and go with your pets. Um, but I think that's kind of the extent that people really think about it. And I think sometimes people are more of the, oh, it'll never happen to me. What yeah. work are you doing with emergency preparedness? Yeah, so I am uh, the community animal response team or CART team lead for my community. I have worked as a training coordinator uh, for the state animal response team for the state of Virginia. I have given national preparedness uh, presentations at conferences like HSUS Expo um, and on Justice Clearinghouse's national platform, really just talking to animal welfare professionals about trying to be the conduit to telling our communities to prepare for their pets. Because really from an emergency management standpoint, they don't have the, the level of contact with pet owners that we in the animal welfare world do. And so um, if we're integrating this into the messaging, uh, it really is the way to, to make those meaningful paths. The community, no community in any part of our country can prepare for all the things that could happen to all of its citizens. A lot of the preparedness work is motivating communities to try and create opportunities in which they can assist themselves in the event of a crisis. And we like to use the word emergency a lot. And I, I think it really gets down to people understanding what an emergency is. An emergency is anything that overwhelms local resources. So in some communities like mine, a apartment complex fire is an absolute emergency. You know, within just a matter of moments, 30 or 40 units can displace hundreds of citizens. So I think emergency really varies. And in all the parts of our country, it's so different, you know, uh, out uh, out on the West Coast, they deal with uh, fires in a way that we on the East Coast deal with hurricanes. And so we all have our different versions of emergency. It's really learning what is the potential likelihood for these things occurring in wherever you live, and then making a, a step in that direction. And one of the things in emergency uh, preparedness that we really work to understand better is how this can be equitably done. So not every family has the resources to go on Amazon and buy a $200, you know, prefabricated preparedness kit. Um, you know, if, if, if currently you're working to make ends meet to pay just your rent and your family's um, uh, daily uh, bills, then of course that's not going to be something that's in, in the uh, cards for you currently. But can you tuck $10, a whistle, and a flashlight in a bag and have your family's medical records copied and kept in that same place in the event that you suddenly had to start throwing things in the bag with it to safely make it out of your apartment quickly? And when it comes to animals, I think as a country, we've very sadly watched many times over and over again that animals were left out of the mix and, and federal laws have changed so that that should not be occurring. But in a lot of part of the parts of the country, it is still a regular occurrence. Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about um, the aftermath of Katrina and the impact of um, not as much planning for animals. What work do you do with communities like and shelters and making sure that shelters are prepared? Because that's another thing that I, I mean, I know I've thought when a storm comes through, like all oh, those poor animals at the shelter, that's gotta be so scary listening to all of that. But then in an emergency, yeah, those poor animals, what, what's, what work do you do there? 
Yeah, so a lot of communities begin pre-staging. And so it's pretty standard um, that when hurricanes, because they're they're forecasted, their path, like their path, for instance, is forecasted. And there are things you can't plan for, like sudden tornadoes, right? Like so there's you can do all of the things correctly and something strikes your facility and there's a loss of life and there's um, an emergent response to that. And that really is in the hands of the professionals that do this work on a daily basis. But if you're a community member and you're wanting to get engaged with this, when, when hurricanes are forecasted, shelters in those pathways will start trying to move the animals that they legally own, meaning the animals that are currently up for adoption, out of, <laughs> out of that forecasted area to make space for the eventuality of potential strays coming in, the potential to have to open an offsite shelter alongside an agency like the Red Cross, for instance, where you're, we call them co-located housing. You're taking pets and people into the same facilities um, out of floodwaters or, or you know, uh, wildfires, those kinds of circumstances. But the problem is those hurricane paths change over and over and over again. So I've been pre-staged into locations and then the path has changed and we've had to move or we've had to get like move out of the way. We were suddenly in the path when previously we were not. Um, I've done boots on the ground work. I was on, on the ground during the derecho at landfall um, in my community and we didn't have power for weeks. Like these kinds of things can be so long standing. It got so very hot. We had owners that were attempting to surrender their pets because they were worried that their pet was going to fall into heat distress. And so we were working to create meaningful, meaningful avenues for them to get into air conditioning and all of the things that happen in this work. And so if, if you're coming to this work, uh, consider taking some FEMA training. Um, in all of the agencies that field respond to do this type of work, we need individuals who have actually invested a little time in that training so that you understand the mechanisms for how we all behave together with one another, that national incident management system um, and all of that stuff, that's completely free. You can get a student ID for FEMA online. It takes a few weeks for them to generate an ID for you, but then that's your ID for life. So you take those trainings, you have those certificates uh, ready to go. And then um, if, if something like that sparks your interest, you can invest your time in reaching out to your local agency and saying, hey, I'd love to help your shelter prepare for a disaster. I would love to be on the list if something like that was ever expected here. Um, and I, you know, I have the, the proof that I've taken the trainings to do so. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. And that seems- All this training's free. Yeah, <laughs> that seems like- The community a needs it so desperately. <laughs> Absolutely. It's an easy way to be available for support without, you know, you don't have to financially donate if you don't have the means. You don't have to foster or adopt if you don't have the means. But taking some class, some free classes is another way that you can help out. That's really great. Yeah, our CART volunteers love to do that. And then a few times a year, we engage in, for instance, like a practice exercise. So because practice makes perfect in this type of work. Um, but it is a great thing to do from home. Um, it's, you know, if say, for instance, travel is a difficult thing for you to do. I know that we have to make reasonable accommodations to allow volunteers to volunteer in all the meaningful ways they want to. And sometimes they're not able to come down to our physical shelter, you know, multiple hours every week that maybe also they have uh, mobility concerns and other things. There's so many different ways to volunteer and all of these courses are free. Many national organizations have great uh, training opportunities additionally that go out throughout the year. 
um, and, and getting involved and learning about it. So you know what questions to ask in your community to see if there's a plan, because um, that's really where it starts. Right. You mentioned earlier that federal laws have changed. Mm -hmm. What federal laws related to animals in general, related to you know, disaster situations? Yeah, so all of the above, right? So okay. the Big Cat Act just passed. And so ownership, for instance, on some of those larger um, exotic cats has been restricted. So lots of federal laws continue to change around, around animals, but around emergency and animals after Katrina, um, we there the Pets Act was passed and it moved forward with laws that required jurisdictions in order to be eligible for FEMA reimbursement for a disaster, they had to show proof that they actually had an animal plan. Um, so it put a lot of onus on those jurisdictions to start creating these plans. Um, but a lot of them, you know, I'll be honest, they haven't been updated in like 10, 15 years at this point. And so when you read them, I like to call them anti-plans. <laughs> I always say in this, in this work, if you have a plan that's like, get the animals out, it's effectively an anti-plan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a plan so bad that pretending that it is a plan really actually disadvantages everybody. It's better to just assume you don't have a plan. So um, making sure that your locality doesn't have one of those anti-plans uh, is really, really important because a lot of them, for instance, say, you know, here's a great example. A lot of them will say, animal control will do all of the emergency response for animals and animal control will also run a co-located shelter and animal control. And I'm like, who has, who, where are all these officers? None of our jurisdictions are staffed to do all of these things at once. Again, an anti-plan. Yeah, It's a plan that really actually in reality would never work um, because the resources aren't there to make it work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What, I mean, does a lot have to go into a plan? Can it be fairly simple or does it need to be pretty comprehensive? Yeah, so starting with something that actually you understand, the staff understands, and they can pull off is really important. A lot of national organizations, HSUS, ASPCA, MADIS, AHAS, they have template plans now that you can use and kind of plug your organization in and make small changes, but you don't have to suddenly be an you know, emergency preparedness extraordinaire. Um, it kind of asks you all of the questions. They actually created this um, really great uh, brochure for gauging where to invest your time for emergency preparedness. So like my locality doesn't invest in wildfires. We don't have green spaces to catch on fire, um, but we invest a lot of money in wind because of the volume of infrastructure in my urban jurisdiction. Wind is actually a huge risk. Um, and so, uh, you know, what it, where's, what's gonna be most meaningful. I always say, if you don't have a plan for your animal shelter first, that's really the place to start. You don't have a MOU, which is a memorandum of understanding or a mutual aid agreement for where your animals could be safely housed offsite. If your infrastructure, your actual animal shelter was impacted, that's a great place to start. And that that's not too tricky, right? That you don't have to do too much like, you know, that's just making a meaningful relationship, maybe reaching out to another regional shelter and saying, if you guys were ever, you know, your infrastructure was ever impacted, we would, of course, work to, you know, take those animals in temporarily while we all got our footing and vice versa. Because understand that animal shelters catch on fire. Animal yeah. shelters have like, um, they have uh, like 
structural problems that occur. Animal shelters can experience like water damage and it doesn't have to be the whole communities underwater for that to happen. Um, and I have found actually that if you look at many of the shelters across the country, many of us are on land that was at some point in time less expensive, right? Because that's where the animal shelter was structurally built. But a lot of the times that puts us directly in floodplains, including my shelter. There is a good sized stream across the street from my animal shelter. And so those are things that we all have to take into consideration when we're making these plans. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to back up a little bit. Can you talk about how you got involved in animal control in the first place? So I'm a funny story, to be honest. I'm always really transparent with young people also about this, because I think it's really important that people understand that life is going to lead you in the direction that's fulfilling for you. And sometimes doors close because other doors have to open. And I was one of those people. So I went to college. I have a poli-sci, political science, Spanish double major with minors in international relations and Asian studies. Um, I was working on the Hill uh, in Washington, D.C. I was doing lobbying work for an environmental group um, out of college initially. And within a year, I was like, I am not fulfilled. <laughs> I am not fulfilled. It's not ticking the boxes um, for me. I really wanted a, a public service based role. I wanted to make a meaningful change in my community. And so to be extremely transparent, I sat around, you know, a campfire with friends one night and was like, listen, it's just not doing it for me. And I said, let's, and one of my friends was like, let's talk about all the things that you're good at. And then we'll just write them on a piece of paper and then we'll pass it around. And like, who is that person? Like, we'll take you out of the equation. And so I did that. And my background is at one point in time, I lived on a working dairy farm. My mother is an AKC judge and dog show handler my entire childhood. I actually showed dogs for a period of time throughout my youth and then was a handler's assistant through my teens uh, as I went to college. My mom's a dog so show, or dog trainer still to this day. She runs a private training business, uh, again, my whole adult life. Um, and so animals ended up in the mix. Wildlife has also been always been a passion of mine. I've always been environmentally focused. So all of these things end up on this piece of paper, right? I speak Spanish. I um, am very good at law. Like I was considering going to law school at the time. They're writing it all down. And a friend gets a hold of that piece of paper and says, you're an animal cop, like that show. Um, and another friend was like, or you're a police officer that has a canine. Like you would, that's just, this is who this looks like. And I Googled and my community had one position open for an animal control officer. And I thought, you know, I'm in my early twenties and that would be an interesting year of my life. If nothing else, it would give me the meaningful insight to do something that actually sparks for me, which is not what I'm doing currently. And I was four months in and I ran a very difficult call for service. And I just happened to be the perfect person for that situation. And I've, it's been history. It'll be 12 years in just a few months. Wow. And yeah, it was just really thinking about what I was good at and what I love to do and deciding that it could, that passion could be a career. Yeah. How has that morphed over the last 12 years? So in this work, your community really drives what you invest your time in, because if you're truly community centric in your work that you're doing, you're just evolving to meet that 
ever growing need. And so I know so much about emergency preparedness and took all the classes because my community didn't have a person who had all of that training. Um, I wrote an exotic ordinance. It took me two years um, and tons of time and investment. I now know the genuses of all old world tarantulas. Why? Because oh my, you know, my community needed me to. Um, <laughs> I ran a community cat program because we had an outdoor cat uh, population issue and I invested years and trapped hundreds and hundreds of cats and have now gone across the country and aided other programs. Um, I learned about restorative justice um, and got involved in creating meaningful change in our legal uh, system in my community because my community needed a few of us to wade into that very difficult topic and learn how to do better together. Um, yeah, the wildlife thing, nobody does it. Um, you know, wildlife uh, increasingly across the whole globe needs advocates. And I said, if not us, who? Like, <laughs> you know, if the, the local animal shelter and animal welfare folks aren't doing it, then who is going to protect these uh, critically endangered animals? And so we started doing that. And I've had a federal migratory bird permit for almost 10 years now. Um, you know, it just it just happened and it happened and it, it grew, grew in so many different areas. And and it's really it's born off of the passions of my community wanting us to do the best we could. Yeah. I might regret asking this question, but why did you have to understand tarantulas? Yes. So, so we wanted to write an exotic ordinance as a result of very sadly quite a few exotic species being uh, critically abandoned and very poor condition in our community. So an example is we found an anaconda in one of our public toilets. At our yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we always said like, you know, only in Arlington. <laughs> so, um, but, but then I started to learn more about what was being privately owned and the conditions with which some of these animals were being owned. And I'm like, we're not living up to the animal welfare standards we hope to have as a community. But some of these things are not super regulated in the way that one would assume. So it really came out of a passion of like, people should not own lions, tigers, and bears in my city. It, it, it sounds pretty straightforward, but it wasn't. And it took me 13 drafts, two years, and I mean, hundreds of hours of manpower and work to come up with a meaningful um, regulation that upheld all of those things, but also met the varied community interests. Um, and so for instance, some of these exotic owners mentioned not wanting specific um, species of animals to be named because in their opinion that was similar to breed specific regulations and I was like wow that's actually you know I hadn't thought of it that way but so and then it kept changing and it kept changing um, and so uh, again a ton of time energy and love put into that ordinance um, but I wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing right I'm guiding an entire community of people um, you want to make sure you've done your legwork and you know what you're talking about and you're giving sound advice. So, yeah, so much. <laughs> yes. And it feels like your time on Capitol Hill has really informed kind of how you navigate these waters and how um, just being diplomatic about the ways you approach all of these different facets of the community, because in order to get these things passed, I'm sure that you have to have the buy-in of so many people with different perspectives and views 
So that has obviously helped tremendously. Yeah, you know, I I I always joke. I was like, you know, I, the universe had a plan. I just nobody let me knew know at one point in time <laughs> what it was. I felt like I was left in the dark, and then that door opened. And you know, I I like to say sometimes that I feel like the community thinks more of me than I do of myself, um, because I don't think we're handed situations by accident. And I've had the great privilege of showing up in some pretty difficult times um, for my community and not just, you know, and then COVID, right? (laughs) And then all of us had to evolve and become communicable disease specialists. Um, And the good thing is I had already written algorithms on rabies management, um, again, based off of (laughs) many years prior to that. So I was like, we know how to do this, y'all. We we can lean in here. and uh, I was the first animal control officer in my community's history to be in the crisis intervention team. We specialize in uh, response to individuals and mental health crisis. My entire department is now in the team. We are all CIT trained and, and COVID happened. And I had to you know, lean in for my community in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's us, it literally all is born out of what I think how I think I can grow myself to meet the needs that the community has. Yeah. With regard to your restorative justice work, does that, is that something that you do separate from anything animal related or do you connect shelter work with that? Yeah. So we actually created the first opportunity for deferred dispositions for dangerous dogs. So it's a convoluted process, but it's a situation in which a deferred disposition or a, um, some people use plea agreement. We don't use that language, but um, where some of these avenues were not considered. And so when we approach some of our cases, everything is looking looked at in a restorative framework in that um, there's fluidity to what the outcome is. And so I like to, I'm a, I'm a deep diver. I don't know if you can tell, I get really hands into things. Um, and, uh, in our cases, we look at the entirety of a circumstance when we come forward so that in many situations, we're actually an advocate at times for the individual, um, who may have been the person who caused harm or, you know, uh, was in in violation of the law because we're looking at the entirety of a circumstance. It's very convoluted. I could talk about restorative justice forever. One of the things that I will say in this work, and it is a a mantra that I've repeated to animal control officers often, is that, um, you know, whenever I tell people that don't, don't do this work, what my job is, the number one response we get is I could never do that. I would just want to insert something people. And, you know, if I ever write a book, you know, the title might be, it's just not that easy to hate people. Or, you know, if it wasn't for love, the tales and trials of an animal control officer, you can't live in that mind frame. And seeing the entirety of humanity in this work, it's just not that easy. You know, we don't have these cases where it's black and white, like law and order, and we all go to a bar and cheers after. That's not what this work looks like in its reality humanity is com- like complicated. Yeah. There, you go into court and there's no circumstance. I've never walked out of a courtroom in my career. And I have 
the the highest prosecution rate in animal control in my community. I've never walked out of a courtroom and felt like I won. Like there, it just doesn't happen. Um, that's just not what this looks like. And so it's understanding that there's a middle ground here um, and we can, we can look at the entirety of a circumstance and truly bring everything into the mix when we're making educated decisions for next steps. Yeah. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but when it comes to this work, it's so heavy. And um, how do you keep going? How do you take care of yourself and keep such, I mean, I know people won't be able to see your face, but you just radiate optimism and positivity and like, yes, we're going to do this. How do you keep that going? Yeah. So I am super transparent, um, (laughs) in animal, in the animal welfare world. I'm, I'm telling you hundreds of people have told me, have heard me say, find support, offer employee assistance program, reach out for counseling, coaches, counselors, whatever really resonates for you. All of us like to share information and kind of receive feedback in different ways. So seek out the one that is meaningful for you. So I have this concept I call marshmallow moments. Um, And it all goes back to a situation that I had. I was about four years into my professional career and um, I was out on a call for service. And in when you're doing this work, you can get caught up in like doing like things too quickly and community members don't know what we just saw or what we just handled. They just know that we're there presently, but I had just come off of a pretty tough uh, scene. I was going over to this house. It was a bite situation, but it was a time where I could slow down and really sit with the family and talk through things. It was a young dog. It, um, it wasn't that serious but there was a real opportunity for resources there. And I took the time to actually meet the family, sit in their home, go through things, offer resources, made a prompt, brought things from my car back into the house and made a promise to come back the next day with even more things. And um, one of the, as I was walking out to the car, one of the young girls in the home, like maybe five years old, came running out to the car and, you know, told me to stop. And when I got down, she pulled this lint color, lint covered marshmallow out of her pocket and she gave it to me. And she told me she wanted to grow up to be like me. And, and, you know, like I joke that it's, you know, if you can envision the marshmallow, it was absolutely a hand mallow, you know, like it was covered <laughs> in dirt and lint, but you knew this child had been coveting, like she put that in there because she like, was like, I will eat this later. You know, this is high value. Um, and she gave it to me as a gift and I drove around for like, first I got in the car, had like a good cry. And that marshmallow sat on the dashboard of my truck for like a week. And I have a picture of it. And every once in a while, um, my memories on my phone will pull up a picture of a marshmallow sitting on my dashboard. And what I tell people in this profession is like, collect your marshmallow moments. Because if you move too quickly, you'll miss them. But, but I promise you, if you really soak them in those small little moments, those wins, they far outweigh the rest of this. And our community needs us to, to figure out a meaningful way to be restored by the work itself so that we stay in it. Um, because people are fleeing this profession, um, because the, the work is hard and, and, and sometimes it feels thankless. And sometimes it feels, it feels burdensome, but like 
find find your marshmallow moments and hold on to them and create meaningful avenues to talk it out with people. Um, and I, I don't do that with my family. That's a boundary that I love to set. I love to reach out to professional services and have those people kind of ready to go should I need to kind of talk through a scenario. Because I mean, we've got stories, right? I've done this for 12 years. I'm right in there with everybody else. I've seen some pretty intense things um, and had some very, very long days, but my marshmallow moments, they, they keep me rolling. Yeah, for sure. What advice do you have for people who want to get into the animal welfare world, either as a volunteer, as an animal control officer, or another, an employee of a group? Yeah. Well, my first thing would be come as you are, you know, we're all different individuals. And I think when I got involved in the work, I was so worried that I didn't have qualifications that other people had, or, um, you know, what was, what was going to be that way that I made a difference. Um, and I just brought the things that I happen to be good at, um, public speaking being on the list. Um, but, but, you know, if you're wanting to volunteer your time and you're just a hobbyist photographer, your animal shelter would love for you to take some amazing photos of their animals to replace those, you know, kind of sad looking ones we take on the fly at intake um, because we're processing animals so quickly and we, we want to get those cute photos, but it's kind of tricky to do um, in the midst of trying to do medical exams and vaccines and all the other things. So, um, you know, come to this work as you are, whatever experiences you have in your past, we need grant writers, we need individuals who can tell our stories, we need people who specialize in technology, because some of us just don't have that, but I might be able to behaviorally assess an animal, but can I run, you know, can I tell you what our outsourced cloud IT tech, no, not at all, I've given myself away already, I don't even know how to explain it. I know they put wires in the ceilings recently in our animal shelter. What they do, I could not tell you, but there are talented people in our administrative side that that don't do hands-on wildlife triage, for instance, but we're like, yeah, we can make sure that this stuff's backed up in the cloud. I still don't know what the cloud is, um, but I really trust that they do. So, you know, um, we come to the work as we are and bring all the talents that you offer. Um, this is a really amazing field in that you're going to find some of the most like kind-hearted people um, doing this work. You're going to make friends. There's no way not to, because there's so many big hearts in the mix at all of our organizations, whether you're volunteering any amount of time that you have. Like I said, volunteering from home, we have volunteers who just check an inbox from their home every day. So helpful. You know, like whatever it is that that speaks to you, do you just love rabbits? We need rabbit people. You know, like it's, there's yeah. so many different things, but come as you are and and we, we've been waiting for you. Awesome. Where can people go to learn more about the programs that you guys run and maybe different ways that they could implement them in their own areas? Yeah, so uh, I work for the Animal Welfare League of Arlington. So our website is www.awla.org. Um, you can go and click on our programs tab and learn all about it. 
our leadership team is listed, included our, including our emails and what we oversee. So if you actually work at an organization and you want to learn more about one of our programs, we share templates, we share protocols. You know, we always say, why write it from scratch when one of us has probably already done it? You know, we've borrowed from others. We'd love to lend it out if that's meaningful and helpful. Um, and if you're in your community currently and any of this has spoken to you, reach out to your local animal shelter and say, what's the greatest need today? You know, what could really move the needle for, for you all? They might tell you to come pick up some laundry and do it at a local laundromat. You know, they might tell you we've run out of hot dogs. <laughs> I don't know, you know, any, if, could you do a spare towel drive in your neighborhood and drop those off to the shelter? Um, recently working with uh, an organization, I mentioned the human care kits that we create to give out to our homeless populations as we're interacting with them. And so um, there's so many meaningful ways to move that needle. And so really just tucking in and, and doing what speaks to you. Awesome. Jen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been so enlightening. And I think this one is really going to touch a lot of people who want to get involved but aren't exactly sure how. I think you, you've you really touched on a, a lot of different ways to get involved and do what speaks to you. So thank you. Of course, it's been such a pleasure. And if you're in this work and you're listening to this, hold on, you're so valuable. We need you. Uh, you know, I always tell people if you're looking for talented people, they're already here. So it's that time of year where we're all riding the wave. I know it's July. <laughs> The end of July and it's like oh my gosh August and September are coming and we have hundreds of animals and foster and baby everything is coming out of the woods um, but find your marshmallow moments I swear they're in there um, and and take a meaningful break you know you deserve time to restore you as well thank you so much of course thank you thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have ideas for future guests, please email me at theanimalrescuepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or follow me at theanimalrescuepod on Instagram.